Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Electric Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. Today we're going to talk about heritage preservation in Toronto, how it's evolved to become an important component in today's land development industry, and some examples of how architects are reimagining ways in which treasured old buildings are incorporated with the new. Joining me today is Dermot Sweeney, president of Sweeney & Co. Architects, and one of the leading architects on many of Toronto's adaptive reuse projects. So Dermot, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. You know, and it's a delight to be here, too, uh, especially from this glorious light-filled office, which is a spectacular view of the city, from this relatively new Queen Richmond Center West building at the corner of Richmond and Peter Street. This building was built by Allied Properties REIT, which is one of the best-known Toronto developers for breathing new life into old loft-style buildings. Now, I was here a few months ago as part of ULI Toronto's Symposium on Toronto Urbanism, and there was a tour that I was on that had to do with heritage buildings and adaptive reuse, and you were one of the guest speakers on that tour uh, in this building, at at the base of the building. One of the takeaways that uh, I, I have from your talk was that this building would not have been possible if it weren't for the engineering and architectural ingenuity that was required to bring this building to life. So maybe you can talk a little bit about it and what makes this new office building so special in the context of heritage building preservation. Sure. I think what made this project interesting and very special was we chose to... Um, look for sites that were owned by Allied um, that would have enough residual land outside of heritage buildings that we could prop up some structure uh, and get buildings over top. So we set out with Allied's permission and they sent us all kinds of um, information, surveys and the like on sites they had that included some parking area or lean-to kind of additions on buildings that were that were built years ago and we then um, we identified this one I drove past it every day on the way to work and I started to think and walk the site I went back sat and uh, leaned against my car and just started some sketching but what was interesting here is there was enough residual land a large l-shaped piece of land that I imagined if we could get three significant points of structure down the fourth one we could carry through one of the buildings or perhaps find a way to build structure that would carry an entire building over top so the real challenge early on was um, to find a way to build something 75 80 feet high that would allow us to maintain retain both buildings underneath and were these buildings designated or listed no they weren't listed or designated uh, a lot of the factories weren't, a lot of the old factories. Um, and a lot of times the factories that were kept were kept by people, myself included, one on Wellington that I developed with a number of friends that we created. Uh, we took an old factory and made it residential. But a lot of the buildings that um, were found 
in you know in in one condition or another fixed up and brought back to the market were not ever listed um, number one most of them were industrial buildings we tended to in the old days list public buildings fancy houses um, you know even even in the distillery district it wasn't fully listed for a long long time so a lot of the heritage factory type heritage was not necessarily recognized until fairly recently i'd say the last 25 30 years anyway the buildings here were not uh we took one of them it was in very very bad shape the one called 134 peter the one directly mo completely underneath the new building uh we looked at the inside it was not in good shape it had been hacked up and beat up and um, obviously well used as a factory. It's the one that was actually the Weston Bis Biscuit Factory. So um, that needed mostly new structure. So we thought, okay, if we put a new structure in the building, have that structure carry right through, we'd have 25% of the structure we needed for a new building. Then we had to come up with three other uh, points of contact together with the core. So the core is founded, of course, the elevators and the main core goes right down. It's offset, so that gave us some other issues uh, strategically, um, you know, in terms of torque on the building. When you pull the core out of the middle, it makes it a little tougher for you. So we then set out with an engineer to try and design three points of contact that would carry the balance of the building. The engineer at the time would draw something that, that we thought wasn't very good looking we would draw something that he thought didn't work very well in terms of supporting the building, and on we fought. And then one Saturday, uh, we had a great day, a sort of epiphany day, where I think uh, at, at one point I asked John Stevenson. Um, Who is John Stevenson? John Stevenson is the, the structural engineer from Stevenson Engineering. He's since retired. But I asked him point blank, so what do you really need to do with the, with the loads? Try and, let's describe it that way. Try and figure it out. We'll try and set architecture to it. And he de de described it, literally. Sat in front of me and put his hands up in the air and brought the forces together. He said, I need to bring them together, then separate them and bring them back down. And I looked at him, I said, like a jack. And of course, he and I, old enough to know what a jack was, the game. Mm -hmm. I say, he said, yes, like a jack. Yeah, a jack and the balls, right? Yeah, yeah. without the, the extra pieces. Right. So a three-dimensional X. Um, so we started working on that. And then, of course, that led one thing to another. We came up with these beautiful elongated sort of three-dimensional Xs. Um, we affectionately started calling them the delta columns. I'm not sure why, but... Um, I guess because of the triangular. Yeah, and the triangulars, and then at the triangular shapes, and then of course, uh, we got bad news back that uh, there was no way to design this out of standard stock steel members. So that created a new mission, and that mission led to finding someone that could make tubes of plate steel thick enough and the tubes of great, great enough, uh, large enough diameter and who could weld sections within them. And that led us to a company in Korea. The tapered ends we could find in Hamilton and nothing that we looked at could resolve the middle uh, where all the forces came together, where all the tubes came together. And then we set out to uh, 
uh, find a solution for that that was non-standard. And that led us to thinking about um, castings. I had worked in a factory as a kid, so I knew a fair bit about aluminum castings and other types of metal. And uh, we got on to someone uh, about the castings. John Stevenson figured that was the way to do it. We could design the steel, the thickness and the weight and the strength where we needed it um, and, and figure this out. So we worked with a company called Cast Connex. Brilliant guy, great engineer from a uh, recent graduate from, well, not that recent, but fairly recent from University of Waterloo. And he figured out the casting in the middle. And off we went. And then we started modeling it, um, checking all the loads. He worked on the casting once we gave him the loads coming in and coming out and all the rest. So it was great. It was a fantastic sort of epiphany day um, that one Saturday. And, of course, then all the follow-up. It was, it was very interesting. If the property wasn't listed, what was the desire to keep working with the buildings and, and trying to come up with something in, in, ingenious to, to preserve it and build on top? Is it, was it sort of a marriage between your interest in heritage preservation along with allied properties, Reed? And their interest in Yes, I mean, I, I had met Michael Emery before. I had a lot of respect for Michael. I think he did. Uh, I have a lot of respect for us as well. He said uh, to me something that was very complimentary at one point. He said, you restored and did the work on Queen Richmond Center, uh, which is now called Queen Richmond Center East. So it's the original. It was nine buildings over between Church and Jarvis on the south side of Queen Street. And it was a beautiful set of fantastic old buildings. There's chocolate factory, candy factory, uh, pipe fitting, blah, blah, blah. Nine buildings that had been roughly brought together um, years ago. And then um, I convinced a bunch of guys to buy them. <laughs> and we went set to work on rationalizing stairs and fixing exits and making... Uh, truck courtyards into beautiful courtyards and bringing in the George, you know, the restaurants and all kinds of fun stuff. Michael ended up allied, bought that building years later and said, my goodness, um, you certainly had raised the bar on what we thought was renovation, restoration. You know, the windows were fabulous and this was great and the way you did the mechanical and how you set this up and how you did that in the courtyard. So that was very nice. We got together and... Um, we both had a great respect for buildings of the past. Um, and even more so in some ways, I believe today even, that we need to make things a lot more flexible. We need to make buildings a lot more adaptable, uh, able to be adaptively reused. Whether, right? whether they're heritage or not. Exactly. New buildings should be designed with, the, with the, these things in mind. Um, Demolishing anything is, and we're also big in, of course, sustainability and environmental and energy reduction and all those good things. So just taking something down makes very little sense. So when Michael and I started talking about these things, it was, it was like a loving. It was great. So what I said to Michael at a certain point was, there's only so many of these great old buildings you can buy and fix. Someday you'll need to add You'll need to figure out a way to grow the value of your company. And, of course, that meant the REIT by then. Um, let's start to look at ways that we can add new buildings in concert with the old. 
and we sort of looked at each other and it was it was very an interesting moment in time where uh at some point i said it's it is it is what your brand is really about and he looked at me and he said what do you mean and i said well the celebration of our past but embracing a fantastic future and to 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 wipe one thing out to build another is not necessarily the the way to do it in fact i think culturally um we've become a little inept in North America because of just that, wiping something out to build something new. And it's a little depressing in our cities that we've gotten rid of so much stuff when, in many ways, there are great ways to build over. So this, this project that we're sitting in, this is, was, this is the first real demonstration of how a developer and an architectural firm that embraces heritage and existing buildings was able to build on top of a, of a, of a treasured building? Or well, have there been I, other examples? I think there are, are many, many interesting examples. Um, they just, you know, they take different forms. I think there's parts of Brookfield Place, BCE Place as it was called, where the, you know, the buildings were actually moved and set up inside the new complex. I think there are, there are some very interesting and good examples of the preservation of certain aspects of a heritage building. Um, I think in some ways today we've gone a bit too far in looking at what we should preserve and what we shouldn't preserve. Um, Mainly because I would say that Toronto probably destroyed too much of its past. Well, that that was going to be my next question. And um, I typed in Google top, you know, uh, buildings that have been demolished in in Toronto, and I came up with this blog to list top ten buildings lost to demolition in Toronto, and there are some pretty remarkable looking buildings that were demolished. Um, a lot of buildings that were built in the, um, the the mid to late 1800s, but demolished in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So, um, Trinity College, the original, and Trinity Bellwood Park. Um, there's uh, the old um, uh, Toronto General Post Office, beautiful buildings, Grand Opera House. Um, uh, the list kind of goes on and on, the Board of Trade building. And these were all um, absolutely fantastic buildings, but they, again, they were destroyed or demolished back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to make way for new developments. So when did the whole movement towards um, heritage preservation begin? Uh, well, I think there there has always been value placed on on beautiful old buildings by at least someone. <laughs> I mean, I I would I would argue that there, there's always been a desire to save and protect and you know embrace. But these buildings, which are marvelous, they were oh the ones that were taken down. I think yeah. um, there were various times, you know, where where importance. Uh, of our past became less important if we were to embrace very quickly uh, massive change. So one of those times was, of course, when we built a financial core. Mm -hmm. The city saw itself clearly as a financial center for a country. Um, Financial centers in the world had tall buildings, had towers, the day of the tower, you know, the office tower as a new prototypical well, a new building type, essentially. Started in the 50s. All of a sudden, you needed to have one. We had Phyllis Lambert. 
out of Montreal with a direct tie to Mr. Bronfman, her dad, and the, you know, TD Bank and Cadillac Fair. It was just fabulous. She studied architecture with Mies, and away they went. So all of a sudden, this rush to make, not just a rush, it was a beautiful thing. I mean, some of the results are amazing. However, can you imagine what, what came down to make our financial core? I'm pretty sure there was quite a few of the buildings you, you may have mentioned, but certainly quite a few beautiful buildings. Um, some of the ones that were preserved, like the CIBC, original tower, and of course the Scotiabank, uh, by Mathers and Holby. It was a great building, fabulous. Best windows in the city, the salt and pepper shaker. They're quite lovely. But, the, you know, some was preserved, which is great. We went and got, uh, myself and some friends, bought 372 Bay, a 1928 building. It was actually at one point the tallest building in the British Empire. We saved that, uh, fixed it all up, re-rented it, put it out to market. Probably sold it too soon. Okay, so then... It looks like it sounds like heritage started to uh, become a, an important factor in in development, preserving some of the heritage buildings. The Her Ontario Heritage Act, as I, I've read, um, was established back in 1975. Um, that's the overriding law that deals with heritage preservation in Toronto. Are there other laws? Just I guess for our listeners who aren't as familiar with that whole world, um, how is heritage preservation enforced? Well, there are federal um, rules and regulations uh, established by Parks Canada. Uh, Parks Canada, which is interesting. Um, and they oversee and govern federal assets, but also buildings that they believe are hugely important to, say, the history of Canada, right? So... The distillery district is one area. That's right. And they have gone to many other buildings for um, a number of different reasons, either because of an act or heritage itself, Fort York, um, or because of um, very, very valuable architecture or an architectural, an example from a great architect. There's a number of uh, national heritage sites. Uh, that are both parks and also buildings. And then you have Ontario, and then, of course, you have the city. And the city has the right under the Act, the, um, the Ontario Act, to go out and, and try to preserve list and get listed buildings and then designate. So it's, it's kind of interesting. I think um, we're, we're, we're seeing the pendulum swing back a little bit the other way. Um, I, there's, there's one thing I can You mean can't. to be less onerous? Well, no, to being more onerous oh, more. and preserving perhaps things that are very hard to justify um, in many ways. However, it's interesting. Um, I think there's a very interesting balance that, that one has to strike. For many years, we weren't preserving enough. We weren't uh, retaining enough. We weren't uh, restoring enough. We weren't investing nearly enough in the condition of buildings. Uh, simple things that we still don't do, right? We, we, if, if a building is in any way important and it's made out of brick, don't let someone paint it. Why would you let them paint it? When I see somebody painting a brick building, I know that it will be destroyed. Just because it doesn't... Well, we, anybody it. in the game knows that. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, seemingly, the experts don't. Or someone... If, if, especially if a building's already listed and you own it, I mean, I bought a listed home 
an old home, 100-plus-year-old house, and after it was listed, the, the owners painted it. I'm like, why, why, why would anyone, if they, if they cared enough to list it, you shouldn't allow them to paint it. Anyway, I don't want to go on with that. But there's all kinds of things that we allow to happen that we know are going to hurt buildings or the buildings will be damaged. So who decides what is heritage and what isn't? I mean, a building can difficult listed. decision. I mean, I think there's, there's many reasons why something may be important. Um, who decides? And uh, how do they decide? What, there, there, are, there are departments within cities across Ontario. There are organizations. There, there used to be Ontario Heritage, an organization that would go out and actually do this for many cities, especially the smaller ones. Larger cities can work within the act and designate and, and list and designate buildings themselves. Um, so there's a lot of people deciding. I, I, I find it interesting that many of them are not necessarily... Um, architects. Uh, so there is a kind of balance to be struck between saving something for cultural reasons, for historic reasons, what happened, who lived there. You know, you go by and you see ex-prime minister's old house, right? Um, but there's a lot of really interesting good architecture that's just knocked down and like because we don't have enough good, I think, architects in the heritage um, business. So it's a constant debate, constant battle with... I don't know if it's a battle. It, sometimes it breaks into a battle, certainly, yes. But some things are just so special we all kind of recognize. It's interesting, you know, we wouldn't let great music necessarily die uh, because there are also great music lovers. So they'll listen to, appreciate, and play not necessarily players, I'm talking about listeners. Um, whereas in architecture, we, don't ha we have lots of architects. We have lots of people that need architecture. We don't have nearly enough people that are just fans mm. and understand it as an observer, not necessarily as the creator, but as the observer, someone that's interested in architecture. It's not part of our education. It's not, not part of our culture in any way, shape, or form. Because we're in a relatively new society. Well, reasonably new, and we kind of cut it off as we left Europe. We thought a lot of what we were leaving was bad. We were coming to the new, the new country, and the new country was a new set of opportunities. Land was cheap. You could build what you want. When you didn't like it, knock it down and do it again. It was the kind of land of different kinds of freedom and of far less responsibility. Therefore, we created sprawl and other things. <laughs> so it's interesting. I mean, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning. Um, the challenges then for for retaining these buildings or for reusing these buildings. I mean, this is always a big argument that a lot of developers will will, will raise: is that we cannot the the perform the financial performer doesn't work. The cost to to retrofit. Um, it, are you finding that um, more and more developers are are uh, able to take that on or embracing that challenge? Um. I would say no. I think it's getting more difficult. The cost of preservation, the cost of retention, the cost of protecting um, is, is gone up exponentially. In certainly my career, it's gone up absolutely exponentially. It's insane how, how expensive certain things are today. And yet, uh, I think in, the, in, in a, today's world, uh, Quite frankly, in my opinion, there's too many sticks at City Hall and not nearly enough carrots. Uh, 
you know, if you if you're asking someone, um, this was a unique case. The building you're sitting in, uh, not much money had been spent buying the old factories. Okay. They weren't listed. Um, they weren't expensive, and yet the land was in a fantastic location. So we had Queen Street, we had King West, we had all of this change happening around us. And we had someone interested in building employment, not housing. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a wonderful opportunity. Those, those are hard to find these days as land gets more and more expensive. And so what you can't do is ignore the fact that great old buildings are often located in great, on great sites. Mm-hmm. They're often in the heart of your city. Sometimes you'll find them in the countryside or whatever, a great house or a factory or something. But most of the great buildings are more in the downtown, more in an urban uh, established area. So that means the land underneath them is worth more money. So for to keep, someone has to buy that land and buy the building and then, of course, restore it, fix it, and, and try and add more value to the land through density. Um, there are ways to do that. There are certain councillors in the past have said that costs money, but it's worth it. It's fantastic. It's something we need to be thinking about. How can we reward someone? Mm -hmm. Give them greater density. Give them a couple more floors on top or whatever that is or cut back some of their other costs. The cost to develop now is, uh, especially in the residential world, is astronomical relative to what the city is also asking you to pay for Section 37 monies, all kinds of cash contributions. And then the development charges, you know, they're over $50,000 per two-bedroom unit now. It's quite exorbitant. So if, if the, the sticks keep mounding up, and if we really want to protect heritage and not fight about it constantly, let's find a way to create the carrots too. The bonuses, you know, if you're going to do something that's important, and we think it's important, um, preservation services in Toronto think it's important. Everyone thinks it's important. We should hang on to some of our past. And and you you think we're just not there yet? Well, we're certainly not. Uh, there's not nearly enough uh, carrots. It's all sticks. Don't do this. Can't do that. Must do this. It's all sort of regulations, and it's difficult. So you know, it turns into a battle. Whereas what we should be doing, in my opinion, is sitting down as a group, meaning the public and the private sector, with good architects, good engineers, good people in between, historians, whatever, sitting down and saying, okay, let's really look at this. And how could we, number one, establish what should be saved and why should it be saved and embrace it and do a great job on restoration of it. Um, and then look, at, look together at the real cost of these things. It's not for free and find a way to get the density up or some other way to add value to the land to pay for it. That would be great. You'd see a lot more, a lot less fighting and a lot more embracing of the past. So I guess, so you're saying allow for more density, um, uh, eliminate or reduce development charges, just put those carrots out there so that a developer's right. performance can, Absolutely. can make sense. And I think you'd see some, of, and here's the, other, here's the other cause for concern. One cause for concern is obvious. Someone, party A, buys old building, beautiful old building, and says, I want to knock it down and develop. And so there goes the, there starts the fight, right? The other danger, which is far less talked about and far more important in many ways, are the ones that aren't being purchased, but are falling apart. 
because you know there's a, there's a lack of interest in ensuring they stay together and are protected but also maintained mm-hmm. you know there's i mean recently we saw a very cool modernist school in toronto get oh, knocked Davis down Bill, right? yeah. is that what you're talking about? well there's a number of them but and it's it was a beautiful piece of modern work right that should have been restored fixed uh added to there had to be some way to do a proper job and get a bigger school they're knocking it down to build a slightly bigger school so i found that very irritating i mean but there's a lot of buildings in the city that are not being adequately maintained um for a thousand reasons it's expensive to do it you know someone said oh we should have a little grant program where people that own magnificent listed homes should be able to have access to certain capital funds to help build and fix up the buildings. Yeah. But it's there's no patrol. There's no, you know, yeah. you know what I mean? There's no one watching over that. So it makes it difficult. It makes so it is, difficult. is the compromise that seems, architecturally, the car- compromise that seems to have um, uh, been common, at least in Toronto, is this notion towards facadism, where you'd have the, you know, the one face of an old uh, building wall uh, retained and sort of embedded into a, a modern tower, a modern condo. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is, is well, it something for, that- first off, I would say to you that in many cases, not all, but in many, many cases, that's all that's of any value. Okay, okay so number one, most of the buildings that are listed today were not listed 35, 40 years ago. Uh, and in some cases weren't listed two years ago. We had one recently where because we applied for development, it was listed. Um, so a lot of those buildings have been altered, destroyed, you know, um, dramatically changed inside, right? And, and, and others never had any value inside. You know, a lot of factories are factories, you know? Um, they weren't special, they weren't magnificent. They weren't architects, uh, architectural inside. What there was seemingly a stronger responsibility to do in the past was often make a more beautiful facade. Mm-hmm. Because that was your point of pride. You can go along the factories. I'll give you an example. There's two factories built on the south side of King, um, just west of Spadina. They're two magnificent factories. They stand out... F- you know, throughout all of King West. I think one guy raised the bar and said, I'll make a beautiful factory. I mean, the cornice work is fabulous, right? And then beside him, somebody raised the bar again. It was just, it's fantastic. But when you get into the buildings, as I have and gone through them all, yes, they've been maintained, somewhat restored, but they're not, you know, they're, they're not phenomenal architecture. Uh, and the facade is the most important thing. Now, if we get into certain churches and someone says, well, I'm going to keep the facade, and you find out the church, the actual the space was magnificent, then that's horrible. You know, And many, we've done that to many of the churches, and I think that's a new pressure we're going to have all over the city. Well, many of the churches have way too many churches, and they're in financial despair. And uh, some of them have called me and saying, like, how could you get us out of this listing so we could sell our church? I'm like, listen, there's got to be better ways than just getting out of a listing. <laughs> anyway, it's so yes, I, I'd say in Toronto, oftentimes 
facadism, as they call it, is not a bad thing necessarily. And in, in places where there is something of great value, let's determine what it is, really work on it, and figure out, some again, some more carrots. <laughs> so then let me just ask then, so what does it take? Uh, this is my final question. What does it take for a developer to be successful with an adaptive reuse project? Like, What are, what, what are some of the, the, the qualities that a developer needs? I mean, you'll probably look to Allied Properties REIT as, as an example, but... Well, they're a great example. Yeah, they're very successful. Um, but even, even still, you know, I think things that I, I would, uh, you know, when so someone says to me, how do I ensure a long-term success in the restoration, fixing up and whatever of buildings, uh, older buildings, I think number one, you have to be smart in terms of, uh, adaptive reuse. You've got to look for opportunities within buildings, um, but then also do them well. You know, what we, what we, it's hard to do. Old buildings are expensive to work on. And, and, and there are great examples. Um, but really good windows, really good sealant, good vapor barrier inside, or allow the brick to breathe. There's a, or stone, right? There's a hundred ways uh, people such as myself and others can help. Uh, people better understand how to preserve and, and retain buildings that don't, you know, uh, get worse over time. And you've got to do a little better job. You've got to also look for better ways to uh, save energy because you can't simply always insulate and add vapor barriers. Very difficult because uh, you get hot spots where vapor and moist air get through the building. And destroy it that way. So there's, there's all this sort of techno stuff. Um, the proper way, the way we're looking at some of the old res towers in Toronto now is to reclad them, which is the better way to, to insulate. But if you reclad a great old brick or stone building, you're losing the brick and stone. So you have to think of it a little differently. Uh, I think there needs to be ways that we, we reduce the cost of energy to preserve old buildings. Um, because they are going to consume more energy. So why, why isn't there some form of grant uh, for a reduction in the cost of gas or electricity? Those things would help us all preserve our, our, our heritage and past. The other way I think that's really interesting is to carefully insert things that make the building of greater value um, and not be so hard on people. <laughs> you know, like I'm looking at one right now. We're doing a restoration, renovation adaptive reuse and people are, are very uh, very hard on us relative to who's very hard on you well the public you know has heritage a lot of people are saying no we don't want you to take the stairs out in front of the building and have the ground floor accessible well suddenly the if the building's not accessible it, it's 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 you know we're 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 holding back value Right. In retail, you know, there was a great thing in Toronto. Someone explained to me many years ago. I asked, why are all the factories half down, half up? Four feet up and six feet down or eight feet down and eight feet up, whatever. I said, you know, why is it that way? And they said, well, number one, you only had to go as deep as the foundation. But number two, if you had your ground floor level with, the, with grade... You paid more tax because you could have retail. 
Well, now as we're building a more mature city, and we don't have just pockets of pure industrial, hopefully soon, uh, and we're doing more mixed use, and we're you know re-engaging with these great old buildings. Well, sometimes you got to bring the ground floor down, right? It's like you got to make a building accessible. You know, from from every everything from wheelchairs, but of course, you know, strollers, anything. You got to make it better. So we did that here. No one ever noticed. You know, the the Ricardas restaurant is in a space one and a half times as high. We had to give up the basement, but we brought the ground floor down, so it's now banking hall type height. It's beautiful, and everybody goes and loves it. It's level with the atrium. You can go inside. You can push a stroller in. It's good. Anyway, these are, these are crazy things that you, you sort of fight over and spend a lot of time on. But to make the building as valuable as you can, you must make it accessible. It's got to be comfortable. We don't put in good enough windows. A lot of the old buildings are drafty. People can't stand them. We all work in them for, for, a, for a lease or two. <laughs> and then we say, we got to go to a new building because you know, it's hard. So, so the do it right. Do yeah. it well. Invest the money. Uh, find a way to, you know, make sure the building is as valuable as you can make it. Well, those are very good lessons uh, to be learned. And for those who are listening to this podcast, if you're a developer or into, into the development industry, or for anybody, um, that's a very good thing to think about as you drive by these old buildings and maybe the next uh, Dermot and maybe the, the next Dermot Sweeney will, will look at the next building and say, I've got an idea. I listened to that podcast. You had something else to say. One last thing I would leave you with, and I think this is as important as anything we've said or d- discussed. Um, it's important to, to make better buildings. And, uh, you know, as I so said earlier. longevity. Well, no, not quality of work necessarily, but that's also important. I meant just make, we should, we should be building better architecture so that it is more important to us. As we become urban, we have never been urban, uh, except for a few, a few pockets in a few major cities. But typically, we're, we're all about sprawl. But as we become urban and we start to live together more and we start to look at mixed-use development and intensification, let's make better buildings. Let's create heritage today mm-hmm. so that down the road it's important. And let's protect the ones that we know of from the past that are important. And now you start to get a really interesting conversation. That's a, that's a very good point because buildings built in the old world in Europe were built to last um, with that mindset, let's build quality, let's build well, people beautiful. People were very proud of the time that they, they lived. And they wanted to leave something important to the next generation. Knowing, of course, that you couldn't control it necessarily. There, new things would be built. Um, but I think do, do things in a way that they can be added to. They can be flexible. Um, you know, this whole paint on maps this planning approach in the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s started to also affect architecture. And what it did was it said an office is an office, an apartment is an apartment, a house is a house, whatever, a fire station is a fire station. And everything was on the map in different colors. You lived here, you worked there, you went to church there, you shopped here, whatever. So that that started to, to inform how we design buildings. We made them highly specific. 
Um, you go to Rome or Paris or great, great cities in Europe, and you find that buildings have transformed so many times. Um, I was in Paris not so long ago and walking by and looked up, and, and um, there was little girls going by in uniforms, and it's not a school. So I said, is your school in there, of course? And they looked at me, yes, on the fifth floor. You know, like, where would you ever see that in Toronto mm -hmm. or even New York? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just fantastic. Well, Paris, the buildings didn't come down. They've just been transformed, and they've gone through a series of mutations. And, you know, adaptive reuse is constant in Europe, which is interesting. And that's something that we need to embrace. So perhaps one day... Well, we could do it better here. We can do it better. Yeah. Well, maybe this building, maybe... 200 years from now, uh, uh, successive generations will walk by and see that this building is no longer office, but is a university campus or, or a hospital or some other use. This has been really interesting, Dermot. Thanks so much for your time and to enlighten us on your views on, on heritage and the quality of, arch of good architecture. You're very welcome. Thank you.